The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Yes, welcome again, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery, and joined today by the other co-host of The Steady Investor, Mitch Zacks, who is the Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Once again, good morning, Mitch. Good morning, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. Very nice day, isn't it? Right. We're uh, enjoying the weather here and uh, just enjoying the time in downtown Chicago. It's a little, I mean, it's not like, uh, you know, sometimes in Chicago in uh, September, it gets very warm. Yes. And uh, I, I think it's warm, but it's not as warm as it has been historically. The twinge of the little fall. In the uh, right, right, exactly. So it's it's uh, it's a very mild uh, autumn uh, for Chicago, which is uh, very nice, I believe. Right. We're going to talk about all sorts of topics today on The Steady Investor. But first, I wanted to say, uh, if you wanted to call into this program directly, you can speak with Mitch Sachs yourself, and you can do so by calling this number, 866 866- Four seven two five seven nine zero, and we will patch you in live to our podcast. Uh, so then, Mitch, um, we talk about this a lot, it seems like, but uh, uh, there's a lot of interest among uh, market participants about the Fed raising interest rates. Yeah. And they are having a meeting again uh, next week. Common wisdom has been for a long time, until fairly recently, that there was no way they were going to raise rates until after the November election at the very earliest. Now it seems there are some, there's a growing chorus of presidents of the Federal Reserve uh, yeah. uh, from the different locations that are saying, we're ready, it's time, bump it up to 25 basis points. I continue to believe that we're not going to see any uh, rate increase until after ele- after the election. I think that there's a meeting uh, you know, in, in, near the end of September. Uh, there's one also uh, you know, early November, and I would be very surprised uh, to see a rate rise in either of those examples. There's just... Uh, the economic data probably justifies an increase in rates, uh, but I think that they're going to lay off doing this while, I mean, they just had some very interesting numbers in terms of income growth. Uh, it's the largest it's been in quite some time, mm-hmm. uh, and they would like to see that continue. Sure. Uh, so I will guess, and their proclivity is towards letting the market run a little bit hotter for longer. Uh, before they essentially start raising rates. Now, now the the people who uh, run uh, the financial services uh, sector, especially the banks, mm-hmm. all want uh, rates to be uh, raised as quickly as possible. Sure. And you're seeing the heads of several uh, large money center banks saying it's time to raise rates. Uh, but it, you know, in a way, that's that's that helps the money center bank. Uh, because uh, they now can uh, earn more money on uh, their deposits, and potentially that's not going to filter through to uh, retail deposits effectively. Sure. Um, mortgage brokers, inter- uh, insurance right. companies. Right. Every, every, the entire banking sector uh, does better in a higher rate environment. So as you see 
uh, everything ebb and flow from interest rates are being uh, raised. You're going to see uh, things like XLF, which is a uh, ETF based on the financial uh, services uh, group, uh, the finance companies based on market capitalization start to go up. And when you see sort of a movement away from the possibility of increasing rates, you're going to see XLF uh, basically come under a little bit of pressure. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and so, you know, it, to some extent, the, the financials are being driven uh, by the rate question. Uh, but in, in these instances, I often find it's very, very useful to try and get away from the parlor game of saying, are they going to raise this month, next month, and just say, let me try and take, come back and look back uh, five years from now. And if I'm looking uh, from what's occurring five years from now, what do I think I'm going to see? And most likely, I'm going to see an interest rate environment where rates are substantially higher than where they are currently. And you're going to see as a result, uh, I believe, some movement out of fixed income and into equity. So my anticipation is if we are meeting in uh, 2021 and it is five years from 2016, mm -hmm. uh, we're going to see higher rates. We're going to see a larger economy. We're going to see some degree of economic growth. We're going to see some, uh, maybe some technological change occurring. And all of this uh, sort of leads me to believe uh, that uh, equities are going to outperform bonds over the next uh, five-year period. Okay. And, and the reason is because I just don't see interest rates going uh, much lower. I, I think given the level of negativity in the marketplace, it's going to be easier uh, for investors to be surprised to the upside in terms of economic growth that is to the downside. Now, Greenspan came out with a very interesting comment saying he's concerned about stagflation. And again, when I've talked about this before, I say if you think about the different uh, macroeconomic environments and what happens in the stock market, the market generally does well in every environment except an environment where you have uh, contracting earnings mm -hmm. and rising interest rates. And that's and, the stagflation. And that, that's the stagflation. And, uh, I am a little bit concerned that, that Greenspan is coming out and saying that, uh, but I, I don't see it materializing. So I think it's a concern, uh, but I think it's a low probability event of occurring. I think it's much more likely we're going to see both inflation, higher interest rates, and uh, rising earnings. And uh, generally, equities tend to do a little bit better than bonds, substantially better than bonds in a rising interest rate environment because interest rates are rising uh, because earnings are taking off. So my, uh, you know, the fear is that you enter into a period where you have both uh, increasing interest rates and uh, declining corporate earnings. Rates go higher than what people are expecting. Earnings go lower than what people are expecting. Mm -hmm. Stocks are hit uh, on in terms of not meeting expectations with both interest rates and with earnings, and uh, they, they come under pressure. I don't expect that scenario to materialize. Uh, it is a low probability scenario. And if I'm coming back five years from now, I'm saying, well, the market's probably going to be higher and you're going to be seeing higher interest rates. If I come back 10 years from now, and it's now 2026, uh, I think it's very clear that equities have outperformed bonds over, the, over that 10-year period. Very good. And from that longer scope, it doesn't matter so much if it's a September that, that, rate that, hike or if it's that's December. That's the key, or is that you have to be year. looking at it over your uh, sort of a longer period horizon. And when you look over a longer period horizon, uh, you know, the fact that the market is going to get spooked when they uh, see interest rates effectively rise is immaterial. Right. It's a bump in the road of the uh, essentially uh, increase in the market on a compounded rate of uh, 6 to 
which has happened historically mm -hmm. and which is likely going to continue to happen into the future. So the, the interesting thing about the equity markets is it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen in the short run. It's very difficult to predict what's going to happen next week. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to predict what's going to happen next quarter. It's even somewhat uh, very difficult to predict what's going to happen over the next year. As that time horizon moves out, uh, though, to multiple year periods, to a five-year period, to a 10-year period, to a 15-year period, mm -hmm. your ability to predict what's going to happen is, is, is much higher because historically you know that uh, the market over a 10-year period has always ranged, you know, occasionally there might be a negative annualized return over a 10-year period. That's very, very unlikely. And all those events contained a cataclysmic, uh, you know, financial event or financial occurrence. And I, I, I think we had ours. I think we had the 2008 uh, crisis. And I think that's going to sort of psychologically impact investors uh, for the next uh, 15 to 20 years. People won't and soon forget. They're, they're not going to forget that. And uh, that came on top of a, a crisis in uh, 2000 where there was an overbidding of uh, technology companies. Sure. And they're not going to forget that. And as a result, tech companies that are growing very fast, like Facebook, would in a different market environment be seeing even a higher uh, P multiple. And you're not seeing that in this market environment because of these two events that occurred. So every investor out there, every person working in policy out there is sort of formed by these two events that occurred, the uh, dot-com collapse of 2000 mm -hmm. and the financial crisis of 2008. And uh, they're constantly on the lookout uh, for the next crisis. And there will be another crisis, but will not be due to uh, increased valuations of equities. And it will not likely be due uh, to a, uh, you know, a liquidity crisis in the U.S. Uh, financial system. Right. And the reason is because everyone is now focused on preventing those things from occurring. So if you have a portfolio manager who's been managing money and they have a 10 or 20 year uh, track record, they live through both these crises, mm -hmm. and they're not going to lean towards those types of stocks. So it's almost as if uh, younger managers who are indifferent to things such as uh, PE multiples have a chance of showing some very strong returns when the market starts coming up. And you're going to start to see, uh, I believe, an increase in growth stocks uh, relative to value stocks in the immediate future, uh, simply because there, there seems to be an over- over-focus on value in the marketplace at this point in time. Very interesting that you say it's going to go up much further. We're at historic highs now, but you're considering... I, I, generally speaking, my experience has been is that when the market hits highs, it's going to hit more highs. And the sentiment is so negative, interest rates are so low, mm -hmm. that if, and if the economy starts to pick up and return to a you know above-par uh, growth level, expectations, earnings expectations of the companies will be able to be beat and the market has uh, some upside. I think, uh, you know, if interest, and then on the other hand, so that's sort of the bullish uh, recovery scenarios. You have a rising interest rate environment uh, combined with uh, increasing earnings estimates that pushes stocks higher. And on sort of the other side, you have the malaise that is currently in existence and interest rates stay, they raise them once and they don't raise them again. Mm. And interest rates stay very low. And the term structure of interest rates is an accurate predictor of what interest rates are going to be at the future. And if that's the case, they're going to continue to pay up for dividend yielding stocks. Right. My own belief is more towards 
a recovery period. I think what we are in now is a muted recovery. And as the psychology of people begins to change, as the uh, income growth starts to filter down, you're going to start to see uh, greater spending by the consumer, and you're going to start to see earnings uh, start to take off a little bit. That exuberance kind of re-enters the market. You need to, markets, bull markets, and when the exuberance uh, becomes, I don't want to say contagious, but uh, you know, prevalent throughout the entire society. And we're not, and we're not even, we're not even close to that, uh, because the, what really kills the bull market is overvaluation. Overvaluation only occurs when everyone in equities is extremely excited about equities, wants to get invested, mm-hmm. and uh, wants to participate in the growth. Mostly, right now, talking to individual investors, even talking to large pension funds, they're looking for an alternative. Uh, to equities. Right. They're saying, I want an alternative. I'm looking at hedge funds. I'm looking at uh, real assets. What about this idea? What about that idea? And the reason is the issues of 2000 and what happened to the market in 2000, what happened to the market in 2008 is looming extremely large in their decision-making process. It's like they're taking what's happened most recently and extrapolating it out. And over their 20-year career or their 15-year time that they've really been in charge of managing assets, they've had two of these events occur. And okay, in the next 15 years, we're going to have another two events occur. In reality, both of those events occurring, I don't think you're going to have events of that magnitude occurring in the future. You're going to have different events. You're definitely going to have sell-offs. You're definitely going to have crashes in the equity market. But I don't think they're going to be as cataclysmic as what we saw in uh, 2008. And as a result, I believe there's generally across the board underinvestment in equities due to the psychological effect of what occurred in, in 2007. So, the, so yeah, it's very important whether the Fed raises rates. It's very important whether the Fed raises rates higher than what people are expecting. But if you take yourself out of the day-to-day noise and you try and look over a 10-year period, I think it's very clear that investing in equities, it's not a zero-sum gain. You're going to see uh, earnings over time grow. And over a five or 10-year period, I'm very comfortable uh, saying that I believe equities are going to dramatically outperform bonds. That's very good. Uh, that's very reassuring, in fact. Well, uh, I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it, 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 I, I believe it's correct. I mean, right. it's not, not just reassuring. I really believe that that's, that's going to be the account because you, you can't have interest rates at 1.6, 1.7 percent of the ten-year treasury, mm-hmm. and expect to make any uh, any returns in in bond land, which just makes equities that much more attractive. Which makes equities more attractive, especially if interest rates are rising because the economy is growing. Right. So everything is kind of in slack. What happens when that slack starts being taken up? The 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 view is when everything's in slack, the slack's going to continue. The slack's going to get worse. What if it goes the other way, which is the natural state of the economy? which is to expand, mm-hmm. the slack gets taken up, and you start seeing earnings growth occur a little bit faster than what people are expecting in sort of a malaise type of environment, uh, the market has upside in that case. Well, that kind of brings me to the question I wanted to ask next. But first, I wanted to say, we're not really seeing a lot of inflationary measures right now. And in in what we've seen from uh, the econ data this week, imports, exports, they're slightly down. They're in negative Territory, we're not are seeing, starting to see wages increase. PPI was neutral. Right, you're right. seeing, you're wage, seeing, wages, you're seeing wages, wages increase. The key to inflation is, is wages. 
You, you yeah. don't get inflation unless you have wage inflation. As soon as you start getting wage inflation, you start getting spending occurring on the cons- by the consumer, and you start to see uh, some degree of price inflation. So okay. The wage inflation drives the price inflation. The price inflation can't exist unless uh, raises are being given out uh, throughout the uh, entire country, and they're not. Right. But they've just started to. There's some indication in the latest data that uh, wages are going up. So it's it, we're, we're not seeing a tremendous inflation. You're going to see the inflationary expectations very quickly in the bond market when they start to materialize. Okay. But I do believe that they're going to be there. And again, let's try and take ourselves out of the day to day and say we're going to come back and we're going to go away and we're going to come back in five years or ten years. Do you think the price of milk is going to be higher 10 years from now? Probably, right. I think it is too, right? Right. And so when everyone's saying that inflation doesn't exist, they're saying that they're going to come back to the uh, grocery store five years, 10 years from now, and because of X, Y, and Z, because of productivity changes, uh, because of lack of demand, et cetera, uh, agricultural prices aren't going to be going up at inflationary rates or income or wages. And, and what I think is happening is we're in a period of a low inflationary environment, but that period is not the standard type of period that persists for the U.S. economy. And the same way when interest rates were very, very high in the 1980s, mm-hmm. people had a very hard time saying, how are we ever going to get mortgage rates below you know, high double digits? Right. Uh, you're in a period now when the low, low interest rate environment, it's very, very hard to conceptualize an environment where interest rates are going to be higher. But if we look back historically, we look where interest rates are now to where they've been historically, I think it's a no-brainer that you're going to see interest rates uh, continue to rise. Okay. It, would it be reasonable to expect, however, that we are now at more or less full employment, you have to say, that, that the wage increases are forthcoming at some point? And at that point, we will start seeing uh, interest rates. I, I mean, the things pushing down on wages, and, and we're, we're running out of time in this segment, right. so That's we'll right. get into the next one. Uh Persists. It, it, you know, it's the lack of unions. It's the increase in immigration. It's the increase in uh, globalization, mm-hmm. and it's the productivity changes. But these things are not things that will. They're, they're one-time events that occur. So the level of union activity falls, but it doesn't keep falling. Okay. The level of globalization increases, but it doesn't keep increasing. In fact, what happens is you have. Yeah, you know, we'll talk about this in a little bit of time. But these events are like one-time shocks to the economy that is increasing the supply of labor and reducing the demand of labor and eventually the economy keeps growing it's going to catch up with it right and so eventually what you're going to see happen is wage differentials start to equalize across the world now it may take a few more years but it it is already happening and it's going to continue to happen and so when that starts to happen you're going to start to see companies start hiring in the u.s as opposed to you know moving plants to Mexico and things of that sort. Sure, very good. Okay, we're going to take a short break here. Um, you're listening to The Steady Investor on Voice America's business channel. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors, and uh, stay tuned. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. 
Zacks focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. I'm Mark Vickery. I'm joined by Mitch Sachs, the portfolio manager and founding principal at Zach's Investment Management. I also wanted to say before we started talking again, Mitch, that to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management, or Zim, as we like to say, uh, you can call 800-249-2934, and you can discuss managing your retirement assets, uh, or you can get more information by emailing us at ziminfo at zacks.com, Z-A-C-K-S.com, also zimwealth.com. Um, I think that pretty much covers it. So please uh, uh, follow through if you're so inclined. Um, Mitch on the markets. Mitch, this yes. is your article that comes out uh, every week. And this one's uh, slightly dire, okay. shall well, I say. Uh, it's called, Can Too Much In It? Well, maybe not. Cause no, maybe, no, I mean, it's, I mean, okay. So uh, let me start by saying right, so what it's called. Can, it. can Too Much Innovation Kill the Economy? Um, the short answer is, well, actually, let's just, let's go into the the robots are coming to take your jobs. This is the mantra right. that we're hearing a lot of, right? Um, virtual reality, self-driving cars, robots are on the assembly lines. A lot of this we've seen already before. Yes. Is this, how, how plausible is this uh, that it could kill the economy, all this? I, I don't think it can kill the economy. Okay. What it could kill is uh, labor growth. Yeah. Okay. So, so it certainly is not going to kill the economy. So a best, the best way to understand this is to think on sort of a micro level okay. and think about companies like Uber and uh, what happens if Uber actually succeeds in getting a self-driving car. They get the regulation so the car can self-drive. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's something like 70% of the cost of a ride is uh, from the uh, the driver, from the driver, not from the thing. So now you have the car engaging in self-driving. So the issue really is that the innovation that's occurring this time with innovate, with information technology is substantially different than the innovation that was occurring historically. Historically, the cars became safer. They became faster. They used less gas. Uh, they went from being able to go at 20 miles an hour uh, to go at 100 miles an hour. Uh, they got air conditioning in it. It made it a nicer ride, sure. things of that sort. Uh, but at all that time, even though the car changed, 
you still needed a person in the car to provide cab services. Right. Now, you know, Uber, Google, they're trying to create self-driving cars. If they're successful in that, the entire workforce that is in the limousine, car driving, everyone who's doing an Uber right now, no, it no longer uh, can compete against the cost that the self-driving car can offer. Sure. And the difference is, is that once that self-driving algorithm is created, it can be duplicated for no cost. So right. whereas before you still had to have some sort of, uh, so you take this thing and then you, you take the algorithm and it would be duplicated in all these self-driving cars. So what would happen is all those people who are using technology right. are now replaced uh, by technology. Right. And so it's very, very good for the economy because the cost of a car ride drops. People no longer have garages, right? Cars uh, are in fleets that are autonomously, right? You know, there's right. all these changes that occur. It changes where people live and everything. Uh, and uh, people are made better off in aggregate. But those people who are driving the cars no longer have jobs. Right. And this is, the, this is true with all technological innovation that occurs. The, the effects of it are felt very, very dramatically by a very, very few number of people. And the benefits are distributed across the society in little amounts. Okay. In this example, everyone's going to benefit because they're going to have lower costs of driving. Sure. But there's a huge cost for these people who are running around driving cars. So they have to find another uh, job to do, essentially. That's right. So that is – it is a real concern. And the, the change of having a, techno, a technology that is a self-driving car is inherently different than the technological change that occurs from the car itself be, uh, you know, from going from a horse and buggy uh, to a car and even right. going from a Model T uh, to a modern car. And the reason is because in one case, you still need people to work with the technology. You still need the person to drive the horse and buggy. You the, right. the buggy changes. It becomes more efficient. The buggy becomes a car. You still need people there. But uh, in this case, the people are being replaced by the technology. So I think that the technological change is inevitable. It's very, very good for the economy as a whole, mm -hmm. uh, but it may be very, very bad uh, for labor, and it may change the dynamics of the society over time. It may require being invested more. If you're part of the investment class, or if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're invested in a Alphabet, where yes. you get, you, you're, you're the you beneficiary in that, it. correct. Right, so that's what happens. And then once that car is designed by Alphabet or, or, or Tesla or, uh, you know, Uber, and uh, assuming Uber goes public at some point in time, you're in a situation where there's going to be a huge barrier to entry to that activity. Mm -hmm. Because once that algorithm is designed, uh, you're not going to have five people in a garage say, we're going to create a better driving algorithm. Okay. It's highly unlikely. Sure. You're, because the, it's gonna be, the complexity of it is going to cause people to be unable to create a competing algorithm. Mm -hmm. So it creates a, uh, a barrier of entry for these large U.S.-based multinational uh, technology companies. Right. And that barrier of entry is uh, sustainable as long as the, uh, the, the technology doesn't change uh, dramatically. Mm. And, and the same thing is going to happen on the farms. You're, you're going to see farm activity become more and more automated. So fewer and fewer people are going to be necessary to, to run farms. Now, that's been happening for 100 years in the United States. And the effect hasn't been bad for the economy, but it has been bad if you wanted a job 
working on a farm. Right. There are fewer people that are necessary. They can do more with less, and that's going to continue to uh, progress in that way. So what what's going to happen is that the, the jobs are going to have to change over time, but the innovation is definitely positive for the market. It may not be super positive for certain people's labor activity, but it is going to be extremely positive uh, for people who own the companies. And so that is kind of what we're seeing, and that's kind of why we're also seeing profit margins of U.S. companies in aggregate at uh, all-time highs. The profit margins keep going up uh, because automation is removing labor from the equation. And I don't want to get, this is sort of a, you know, a very in vogue or in the news point, and it could just be we're at a lull in the labor force, and if the labor force was picking up and wages were increasing, no one would be working, uh, worried about this. Right. Uh, but the fact that the innovation is occurring, they're, they're going to point over here and say, look at this innovation. I think ultimately innovation is extremely positive for economic growth. Mm -hmm. It's extremely positive for corporations. It's extremely positive for people who own U.S. corporations as opposed to European corporations. It's extremely positive for people who own publicly traded stock. It is not so positive if the job is being disrupted by the technology. And the issue is if enough people's jobs are disrupted by the technology, mm -hmm. you're going to have uh, some issues in the society. Yeah, an economy that basically runs on how many consumers are are involved right. in it. And if right. you have fewer consumers because fewer people with the capital right. to spend on, on goods and services, that damages the economy on it's that It's the side. whole Ford thing. He, the people who make the Model Ts buy the Model Ts. Right. If you have self-driving cars... You don't have anyone making the cars. You don't have anyone driving the cars who is buying the cars. And it's not a crazy out of the, you know, you know, crazy view. But generally speaking, the U.S. economy has a history of incorporating technological change much better and faster than other economies. So if you think about a technological change like Facebook. And why or, is that, first of all? Why is that? Because the there are less frictions in the U.S., you will have people who have established pools of capital willing to bet on new entrants that are disruptive. Mm -hmm. In China, you don't have that happening. You don't have Tesla in China. No, you, you don't because or just think of something like Craigslist or something of that sure. sort that's mm -hmm. going to disrupt all the papers. You, you, you're, you're going to have in the U.S., they're going to say, okay, this is something we want to have. We're going to fund this. In other areas of the world, there's, there are regulations that prevent these changes from occurring, mm -hmm. and the people who run the large entrenched companies actively use the political clout they can obtain to prevent new entrants uh, from occurring. And uh, that's how these companies uh, prevent changes from occurring. And in the U.S., that ability is lessened, and so you're going to see a greater amount of technological change in the U.S. The U.S. economy is bad at certain things, but one of the things it is extremely good at is incorporating technological change. If a new algorithm comes out that is better, faster, and uh, more accurate than uh, Alphabet's or Google's algorithm in search algorithm, right. it's going to get funded. It's going to have massive amounts of money thrown at it in an extremely short period of time, yeah. and it's going to become a competitive product. So it, when there's technological change, the U.S. economy does extremely well. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this is uh, so the more technological change that's occurring, the more it's going to likely benefit U.S. stocks relative to uh, European stocks. You wouldn't be betting on French equities and saying they're going to adapt dynamically uh, to a changing uh, IT environment. 
Right. You're going to be betting on U.S. equities and saying they're the ones that are going to adapt dramatically because the competition is allowed to flow. And if the competition is allowed to flow, that incumbent company has to make sure that the new company doesn't get the funding to compete against it. So they have to uh, continually be changing and trying to improve themselves. Right. I think this kind of folds quite nicely into being an investor. So if you're going to take advantage of these, uh, having a portfolio with Zach's Investment Management, yes. for instance. Or uh, having, having owning equities, U.S. equities, right. is the way that you would hedge your labor income about uh, automation. And I think that that is the real problem, is, is that those that have enough net worth to invest in equities are going to continue to see the gains grow mm -hmm. at a compound annual rate. And those that can't, it's going to be harder and harder for them to obtain that capital to, uh, to invest. Uh, but if, if, if someone's uh, you know, older and they have those retirement assets, uh, it, 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 from that perspective, it's looking very, very positive uh, for U.S. equities. To plan thusly seems the smart move, especially over what we're seeing in technological. Uh, yeah, I mean, you've, you've had technological change throughout uh, the history, the economic history of the United States. This technological change is no different. There's some argument it is, it is conceptually different or the effects are going to be different. But the net result is the technological change tends to be good uh, for the U.S. equity market. Very good. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about it's in here in the article as well. The U.S. was once an economy where 80 percent of the jobs were in agriculture. Right. We certainly don't see that anymore. Right. So um, as fewer. So so the issue is that when you're in that economy that is 80 percent agriculture, you can't envision the economy that is to come and what people will be doing 50, 80, 100 years uh, from that point in time. Right. And you just say, well, there's all this farm activity and there's all these people working on the farms. What's going to happen when they don't? have to work on the farms. Right. How is the economy going to support itself? It's the same sort of thing. The economy is extremely dynamic. It adjusts uh, just as the same sort of way that you're sitting there saying, well, once no one's uh, you know, on the farms, how are, they, how are we going to employ all these people? Yeah. And the answer is that the economy changed to employ all the people. The same thing is going to happen this time. The, the, there's going to be a technological change, but the economy is going to change. The people who are going to have to change careers because of automation are going to find other things to do effectively. It puts me in mind, though, that let's say people once upon a time left the farm yeah. for the big city and yes. worked in the big factory. That job is gone. They became a cab driver. Right. That job is gone. They became an Uber driver. Right. Now Uber is going to have self-driving cars. Aren't we maybe are on a precipice of some well, sort. Well, that's, that's the negative. Uh, the negative argument is that there's something fundamentally different with the technological change that's facing the economy than what's happened before. And that argument, as soon as you hear someone say it's different this time, uh, alarm bells should go off in your mind, especially in terms of investing. And the reason is the more you hear and the more I have heard it's different this time, uh, whenever it's prefaced that way, it's a clear indication to me it usually isn't. And uh, the same way, it, it's 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 not different this time. It, it it's not different with the agricultural changes, with these large, tremendous changes that occurred. Uh, you know, like Gordon is saying, occurred uh, in the industrialized economy historically. Um, it's very true with, uh, excuse me, valuations. It's different this time. Stocks demand a huge valuation because of this, because of that. Mm -hmm. I've heard that. Numerous times, and every time you hear it, you say, "Well, it's, it's not different this time." Uh, eventually, interest rates are going to rise, and PE multiples are going to come down a little bit. 
the table may be reset in the some table way. Table reset, but the, the basic game continues to be the same over and over again, despite what is thrown at it in terms of political turmoil, in terms of technological change, uh, in terms of uh, you know changes in the society. The basic investing game stays relatively the same, which is you try and get into equities, you try and hold them for a long period of time, you try not to get shaken out, you want to get into equities psychologically at the worst times, you want to get out at the best times when it's when you should be buying. So you want to be buying, uh, you know, psychologically, you, you're going to be buying equities when maybe you should be lightning exposure and you want to be selling, you're going to be trying to sell equities when you should be buying it. And because you, it's very hard to fight those psychological impulses, the way we can help people is by showing them that if they can invest in equities and stay invested over long periods of time, they can create wealth. And that's what I, I really hope we, we, we can do at Zacks is that we can help people grow their wealth over time by explaining to them that the way you do this is by investing in the equity, equities, trying not to time the market, right. ignoring all this talk about technological change, ignoring all the talk about stagflation, ignoring the recession that occurs, ignoring the exuberant expansion that occurs. The volatility to, index. Exactly. <laughs> ignoring all this stuff and trying to stay very, very focused at having a, a constant percentage of your assets in equity and a smaller constant percentage in fixed income uh, to reduce your all fluctuations. And if we can do that, we can help people uh, grow their wealth over time. Very good. Also, on to that note, to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management, please call 800-249-2934. You can discuss managing your retirement assets, uh, or you can find out more information by emailing us at ziminfo at zax.com. Also, visit the website zimwealth.com. Um, there was a point I wanted to make right before I said that, and I can't remember what it is. Um, that's fine, Mark. I mean, we're... We, 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 uh, we were talking about uh, that, but that, in my mind, is really the, the key issue. It, the issue is, it's like in the market, those people that have no knowledge tend to do okay. They'll invest in the stock market, and they'll stay invested over long periods of time, okay. and they won't know what's going on. And those people that have a tremendous amount of knowledge yeah. uh, tend to do okay, because they realize that when they're reading something in the Wall Street Journal it's already reflected in stock prices and uh, you don't want to be responding to the news right. unless you really know something that is completely unknown by the rest of the investing public, which is uh, by definition uh, close to impossible. By the time you're reading about it. Right. By the time you're reading about it, it's, too, it, late it's to too late to trade on it. The people who run into issues are the people with a little bit of knowledge and uh, they will read from multiple sources. Uh, some piece of information, and when they start reading it from multiple, multiple sources, they'll start reacting to it. And that's uh, by that time, by the time it's coming to you from multiple sources that are widely accepted, widely disseminated information sources, it's completely in the market. And what happens is the market actually does the opposite of what the news information is is, is providing to you. So the people who have no knowledge and they just listen and they say, okay, I want to stay invested over long periods of time. That's what they're telling me. I'm going to try and listen to what they're saying. Mm -hmm. The market fell 20%. I'm going to, they say, ignore it. That sounds crazy, but I'm going to ignore it. They do fine. And the people who are uh, who, who have enough knowledge to know that the 20% market movement down is par for the course, and eventually it moves up again, mm -hmm. and it moves up and appreciates at this long-term rate is fine. They do fine. They too. do fine too. It's the people who are in between those two 
that run into the greatest difficulty generating returns over long periods of time. And it's very, very unusual is that in other fields, that's not the case. Uh, but it, yeah. in, in, in finance and in equity investing, uh, if you know a very little amount, you do very well. And if you know a tremendous amount, you do very well. But if you're in between, it's hard to do well because you know enough to know this should affect stock prices and you try and react to it. You know the market might crash. You're very worried about that, et cetera. So if you're oblivious to it or you realize it's going to occur and you ignore it. Right. And uh, hopefully we can move people towards the top end of that so they understand what's what's going on in the equity Very market. Very good. Mitch, we're going to take a short break again. Uh, thanks for listening to The Steady Investor. We'll be right back after this message. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 800-245-2934. Or to learn more, go to ZimWealth.com. Again, that number is 800-245-2934 or go to ZimWealth.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. And we're back on Voice America's business channel. This is The Steady Investor. I'm Mark Vickery with Mitch Sachs, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zach's Investment Management. I know I've said it a couple times before, but I wanted to say to contact a representative at Zach's Investment Management to discuss your retirement assets, <clears throat> Excuse me. you can call 800-249-2934. Uh, you can also email us at ziminfo at zax.com and check out our website at zimwealth.com. <clears throat> Excuse me, Mitch, one second. I want to talk about the Zach's uh, small cap, uh, small capitalization, yeah. that is, the growth strategy and the value strategy. Yeah, we're coming up with uh, two new <clears throat> strategies we're rolling out later this week. Uh, one, which is a, uh, a value strategy designed to outperform the Russell 2000 value index, and the other, which is a growth strategy designed to outperform the Russell 2000 growth index. Okay. And, uh, you know, we've been developing them for a, a while, and uh, we're very excited to uh, to bring them to the public. Uh, the value strategy is looking at valuation factors and short interest relative to shares outstanding and combining those factors together mm -hmm. uh, to generate a <laughs> ranking model of all the companies within the Russell 2000 value index. Right. We're using that ranking model as input to an optimization uh, routine that is then uh, 
recommending a buy list and a sell list uh, to match the sector and risk exposure of the Russell 2000 value index. Right. So we're, we're trying to give a bias towards companies that have attractive valuations, that hedge funds are not actively shorting, but we want to own these companies in the same sort of percentages that the index has in terms of aggregate risk characteristics and in terms of sector exposure. Right. And so the, the, the net result is a, is a portfolio that uh, we're looking to potentially outperform the Russell 2000 value index. And what's interesting is that as you study these investment anomalies that you know lower price to book stocks outperform uh, higher price to book stocks, or uh, there's another anomaly that uh, higher quality uh, stocks, uh, stocks where the earnings quality is a little bit higher outperform stocks where the earnings quality is a little bit lower. Uh-huh. Uh, for the most part, many of these anomalies uh, tend to persist uh, and are more are stronger uh, the smaller the cap the stock is. Okay. And the issue really is the uh, transaction costs you have in in in, in making these trades, and uh, the key is to try and find uh, the anomalies uh, that can work when adjusted for the transaction costs. Uh, that are going to occur in the small cap space. There's more of an issue with transaction costs for small cap trades. It, 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 there's a it, it, the issue with transaction costs in stocks is really based upon the amount of money you're trading relative to the average daily volume uh, that trades in that stock. So if you're trading a million dollars worth of a position, and that position trades. $4 million on average a day, mm-hmm. you're representing 25% right. of the volume. And so it's the opposite, uh, you know, people who are, have worked, at, you know, in, in the in the sort of, in, in the economy, it, it, you always get discounts for the more that you buy. If you want to run a store, you run a big box retailer, you have tremendous buying power. As you buy more from your suppliers, they give you lower prices. Your economies but, of scale. Economies right. of scale. In the uh, with the stock market, it's the opposite. The more that you're trying to purchase, the worse price that you get, and that's what keeps uh, the investment management market very fragmented. Because if any investment manager, you know, we have like you know, we're managing uh, several billion dollars. There are people managing a hundred billion dollars. Uh, there aren't that many people managing a trillion dollars. And yeah. the reason is, as the assets get too high. Uh, they, they start, if they have a strategy that's working, uh, the, the, the prices, there starts to be a greater transactional impact of the activity. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's very important uh, when looking at anomalies uh, to make sure that after adjusted for transaction costs, uh, it's still going to persist. And I think we've done that successfully in the small cap growth strategy and the small cap value strategy. Good. I, I mentioned price to book and quality. It's interesting. Price to book or value metrics do tend to work better in smaller cap stocks. That's interesting because you don't necessarily think of smaller no, cap I stocks take, and value right, at the same if time. If I take the thousand largest uh, companies, or I take the three hundred largest companies by market cap, mm-hmm. and I put them into two groups, uh, based uh, put them into ten groups, let's say based on valuation levels, you're not going to see a tremendous difference between the lowest valuation des- uh, group and the highest valuation group. If instead I take the 4,300 publicly traded equities Mm -hmm. and I put them into 20 fractiles based on valuation, I start to see a very, very big difference. Okay. Now, valuation metrics uh, tend to work better in uh, smaller cap stocks. Also, the small cap anomaly only works better in small cap stocks. So if I take the 1,000 largest cap companies and I group them into 10 deciles based on capitalization size, 
right? You would think, oh, okay, I learned in business school that small cap stocks outperform large cap stocks. That doesn't hold for the thousand largest cap companies. So based on capitalization size, there's not a huge differential between the smallest cap and the largest cap. Okay. But if I take the 4,300 and I look at the 400 smallest cap companies there relative to the 400 largest cap companies, those small cap companies out outperform. The issue is most commercially available mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, uh, SMAs, can't get into these very, very small cap companies uh, because of, you know, if they want to put a uh, billion dollars to work in, uh, you know, a hundred names, right? That's takes yeah. $10 million a name. Right. These, these companies in the smallest decile have capitalizations of 20 million, 50 million, 70 million dollars. Right. Not only are they representing multiple, multiple days of the volume, they would wind up owning 20%, 30% of the shares outstanding. And uh, so you have to be very cognizant of the fact that when you're looking in the small cap space, you're adjusting uh, for transaction costs to make sure the anomaly. But like I was saying, the valuation anomaly does work better in smaller cap stocks than in larger cap stocks. But the quality anomaly, interestingly enough, mm -hmm. seems to work equally in both small cap and large cap stocks. Wow. And there's a debate whether the quality anomaly is an anomaly that is real or just sort of was discovered in sort of the, uh, you know, after the 2003 uh, sort of uh, crisis that occurred with WorldCom and Enron sure. and all these companies that had very, very poor earnings quality. Right. And then, okay, look, we everyone did these studies and they said, okay, if we adjust uh, for the earnings quality, those with higher earnings quality outperform those with lower earnings quality. And what people were very excited about is that the, the strategy had low turnover and it worked in both large caps and small cap stocks. But interestingly enough, since that anomaly was published, it hasn't worked as well. Huh. So, so you have this issue that there's a tremendous amount of computing power looking at all sorts of uh, different databases, coming up with ideas of anomalies uh, that persist. And when those anomalies are discovered, uh, it, it, you have to see if it continues to persist over time. So a lot of this is, is driven through trial and error of looking at the anomaly in different market environments and in different market segments and seeing if the if the anomaly continues to persist even after you sort of have uncovered it and in both the small in the small cap value and small cap growth we believe these anomalies do persist uh, that what we're using in the small cap value will over an extended period of time uh, generate returns that are uh, greater than the benchmark and in the small cap growth, we're looking for the anomalies that we're focused on there uh, to generate higher returns over time. And small cap meaning under a billion market capitalization? Uh, what we're looking at in both of these uh, strategies is that there's the uh, Russell 2000 yeah. is the universe. So if okay. you think about it, a lot of people hear of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. They hear of the S&P 500. Mm -hmm. uh, what Russell does is basically they take all the companies out there, they rank them by market cap. The thousand, it's not exactly this, but it's, it's very close to it. Uh, the, the thousand largest by market cap are put in something called the Russell 1000. They're divided into two groups called value and growth. The next 2000, so those ranked between market cap 1000 and market cap 3000 are considered smaller cap stocks, okay. and they're put in the Russell 2000 universe. And okay. the issue really is- And that's 2000 stocks, so that's it's 2000 a lot stocks, entries, yeah. and uh, it's a market cap weighted index. So okay. you have a huge, massive, waiting on the larger cap stocks in the small cap universe. 
Okay. Because uh, the way that they weight these things, and right. the other thing you, you find in the in the small cap uh, uh, indexes is that you, you see you see a lot of uh, weightings in uh, in val in uh, finance companies. So if we look at publicly traded companies from a thousand market cap to three thousand market cap. Uh, and I look at the ones that have the larger capitalizations, uh, they don't tend to be new product companies, they don't tend to be technology companies, uh, they tend to be uh, various banks. And what you're likely going to see uh, structurally occurring in the U.S. is that uh, you're going to see some degree of banking consolidation uh, con continuing to occur. I mean, right. there's two. There's one idea here, the banks are too large, they need to be split apart, uh, but generally speaking, you're going to see they want larger numbers of large regional banks that have multiple smaller banks sort of under their umbrella. Okay. Uh, it makes it easier to monitor what's going on in the economy and to make sure 2008 uh, doesn't happen again. Right. If you have all sorts of smaller banks doing their own thing, it becomes very difficult. But you, you want to make sure effectively when looking at these strategies that, for instance, if you don't want that level of finance exposure, you want to be going towards a small cap growth uh, process. And so in, in both these instances, what we're doing is we're making sure that the risk of the portfolio is similar to the benchmark, but we want to give a bias towards companies that will benefit from this investing anomaly in the small cap uh, stocks that we're looking at. Okay. So let me ask you this. In the growth strategy, yes. are we mostly looking at tech stocks? And in the value, are we mostly looking at utilities and that sort of thing? Or is it doesn't really apply? When it, you're, it, about these you're looking at the same stocks in the Russell 2000 growth sector exposure and the stocks in the Russell 2000 uh, value sector exposure. So in the Russell 2000 growth, you're going to have more technology companies. Okay. And the Russell 2000 value, you're going to have more finance companies. Companies. There aren't a lot of utility companies I guess. So you were that are small cap. Utility companies tend to be larger capitalization stocks. Good point. Uh, they tend not to be in the index. But what you're, you're trying to do is you're trying to say, listen, I want to own the small cap value stocks or I want to own the small cap growth stocks, but I want to own or give a bias uh, towards those stocks that have exposure uh, to, on the value side, a valuation metric. Right. And on the growth side, uh, more of a uh, quality metric and 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 some metrics uh, that effectively look at uh, at uh, at other things that are going to be uh, correlated with uh, fundamental growth. Okay. And um, now you said these are unveiling when later this or yeah they they've been they've been trading a, a while with the, the firm's money and we're unveiling okay. them to uh, prospects and clients uh, later this week and uh, allowing people to begin investing in them. Terrific. We're going to start to use them in our allocation process as, as uh, appropriate. And what's the minimum amount to invest in these strategies? I, I think our minimum amount is around three hundred thousand dollars these days uh, okay. for a uh, separately managed account. Uh, they do take uh, lower minimums, but it, it's hard. Uh, given the amount of attention that we provide uh, to every client relationship, to provide that level of attention with lower than three hundred thousand dollars. All right, that's a that's a fair point. Um, and then when we call that eight hundred number. That's what we can talk. Yeah, to I mean, about I don't. That. I'm not trying. I'm just. I'm, no, I'm, more, just I'm more interested in talking about the anomalies or something like that. But it's yeah. If you if you call the eight hundred number, we'd be happy to 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 uh, show you the uh, strategies or try and uh, create a customized allocation across our proprietary strategies that's consistent with your risk level. But the way that we can help people over time 
is yes, we believe we can outperform these benchmarks uh, through this, uh, these statistical processes uh, focused on uh, anomalies in, in the equity market in the small cap space. But what we really are trying to do is we're trying to get people uh, to have an equity and fixed income mix and try and stay with that equity and fixed income mix over long periods of time. So it's not a question of, well, uh, you know, yes, can you outperform the small cap value, can outperform the small cap growth? It really is a question of can you invest in equities and stay invested over long periods of time right. and ignore the fluctuations. The greater your diversification across your equity strategies, the easier that is to do. And the more that you have some degree of fixed income in the portfolio, also the easier it is to do. It's very interesting that it's small cap stocks too that we're focused on rather than, um, normally these kinds of, uh, of conversations happen around uh, the bigger companies that you're thinking of. No, we, we have strategies that focus on the small cap space mm -hmm. and we have strategies that focus in the large cap space. Sure. The large cap space, we have a value strategy that's uh, expanded dramatically in assets. We have a growth strategy that's done uh, relatively very well. And so what we're doing is we're expanding some of those models uh, to the small cap space, and we're adding on to a mutual fund and a small cap core strategy that we already have in the small cap. Sounds space. very intriguing. So essentially, what we're doing is we're expanding the uh, the anomalies that we've been using in other areas of the marketplace to the smaller cap arena. Fantastic, Mitch Zacks um, from Zacks Investment Management. Um, this is the Steady Investor. We'll be back next week. Um, please visit us then. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? 